Well, good morning. I love that song. Thank you for the lovely worship. It's a very beautiful morning to, as Tom said, talk about the faithfulness of God. And I think about how Seth and Timothy were just little guys and look at the faithfulness of God, raising them up to be godly men, going off now to college and to serve him. I I thank the Lord for that. So uh, praise be to God for what he's done in their lives. Well, dear ones, today, oops, I got to hit my computer to start it here. Most Americans, including us, I think, are certainly aware that the Medal of Honor is often given to our servicemen because of their duty that is above and beyond the call of duty. And I say that because I think it's a good analogy for what Christ is calling us to in this passage. And that is, we're going to learn today that we as Christians have to be willing to forego our desire for retaliation or vengeance and go above and beyond the call of duty and show love and benevolence even to our enemies. Now, in this message, we're going to learn that certainly self-defense is moral, but not the desire for retribution and vengeance. That has to be replaced with a trust in God's perfect future judgment. And we're going to learn today that we as Christ's people have to be those who show a benevolence even to our enemies because we belong to a God who was first benevolent to us while we were his enemies. That's ultimately what we're going to be learning here today. Now, I want to begin today by talking about how Christ, he is going to correct a misapplication of the law of retaliation that was found in the Old Testament. That law is often shorthanded as lex talionis. Lex talionis is simply the Latin phrase that has to do with the law of retaliation. Now, you see this law of retaliation in the Old Testament in three spots. You'll find it in Exodus 21-24, Leviticus 24-20, and then here in Deuteronomy 19-21. So what I'm going to do is I'll read this to you, then I'll explain the misapplication and how Jesus had to correct the Jews in his day. Notice the law said, this is the Lord through Moses. It said, thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, the first thing I want to point out here is this demanded this law that the Israelite judges would punish evildoers. Now, in fact, I want to point to, notice the opening clause. It says, thus you shall not show pity. It's very important that we see the you there is not every Israelite. They could show mercy. In fact, they were commanded to. But rather, it was for the judge. The judges in Israel, their job, as all judges even today, it's their job not to show mercy, but rather to execute justice. Now, here's the misunderstanding that the Israelites had. This text was actually designed to limit the amount of damage that could be inflicted upon a perpetrator the penalty had to be commensurate with the offense. Now, why would that be important? Well, remember, in the ancient Near East, the idea of blood feuds was very common. For example, let's say you had two tribes that were warring. One may have insulted the other tribe, and because of that insult, that tribe kills a member of the other tribe. Well, then that tribe says, you kill one of us, we'll kill three of yours. And that cycle of vengeance, because of the shame-honor society, would rage out of control. So in the Mosaic law, God puts the state in charge of vengeance and he 
sets boundaries. And one of the boundaries is if you lose an eye to your enemy, you can't take their life. It has to be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I'm sorry, I just had um, antivirus protection expired and that just came up. So if my whole computer reboots here, I got to get rid of that. Sure enough, (laughs) perfect timing. There it's back. So that's the issue. Now, here's the fundamental flaw that the Israelites had. In Jesus' day, it was thought that this principle demanded retribution. In other words, what the Israelites did is they took this text and they said, aha, we have a pretext that we can be vengeful and spiteful and seek revenge in our own personal lives and we don't have to extend mercy. That's what they thought. In fact, what's interesting is the law itself taught that the average Israelite, not talking about the judges, but the average Israelite had to extend mercy. In fact, later in Deuteronomy 32, 25, we'll talk about that passage later. The Lord said, don't seek your own vengeance. Leave room for the vengeance of the Lord. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So even to the Israelite, like under the new covenant, they were not to seek retribution, but mercy in their personal lives. And so that's what Jesus is going to have to do. He's going to show that in the personal life of his followers, we are not to be the people who go tit for tat in retaliation, but rather you and I show a godly benevolence and love towards our enemies. Why? Because again, God showed us that benevolence in Christ while we were yet his enemies. That's what Jesus is going to be showing us in this passage. And so as we open it up here in Matthew 5, 38 through 39, we see that once again, Jesus is correcting not the law, but the misapplication of it. Notice what he says regarding lex talionis. Matthew 5, 38 to 39, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, dear ones, notice here, Jesus is citing the lex talionis, again from Deuteronomy 19, 21 and Leviticus 24, 20, and those passages. And notice he says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Again, what was that created for? Number one, it was created by God so that the judges in Israel would in fact mete out justice, that they would not simply be merciful to evildoers. But number two, again, it was designed to restrain the amount of damage that you could inflict upon a perpetrator that had to be commensurate with the crime. Someone takes your eye, you can't take their life. It has to be eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But again, what did the Israelites do with it? Aha, we've got a pretext. We have a text from the law that says we can be vengeful and that we don't have to show mercy. Jesus is going to crack that and say, no, no. If you belong to me, that's not the way it is. And again, it wasn't the law's problem. It was the misapplication of it by the Israelites. So this is why Jesus says, notice verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Let's stop there with this clause here where he says, do not resist. What's very interesting is the term resist there comes from the term anthistomy. It's actually a legal term that was used in the courtroom of the day. And we're going to see proof of that because when we get to verse 40 on the next slide, Jesus will say, so if someone wants to sue you, well, where are they going to sue you in the courtroom? Now, why am I laboring that point? Because what's being discussed here, it's very important. 
This is not you being assaulted by some criminal out on the street or somewhere, but rather it's about being insulted, in this case, in the courtroom. So this is very important that we see this text is not about a physical assault, but about an insult. And we see that here and also in the very next clause. That's why it's so important. In fact, by the way, this term for resist is also used in the courtroom setting of Isaiah 50, verse 8, if you're a note taker. So that term is used in the Septuagint. So we know it's a courtroom term. Now, I want you to notice here, we're not to resist then, but notice it's a resisting of an insult. And he continues, he says, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. What is that all about? Well, remember in the ancient Near East, they lived in a shame-honor society. And so the worst thing that could ever befall you is that you would be insulted, that you would be shamed, that you would lose honor. In fact, they would rather face death itself than being dishonored. And the greatest way of being dishonored, this is the greatest insult possible, would to be slapped across the face in public. What Jesus is depicting is the greatest insult that could befall an Israelite living in that culture in public. That's what he is describing. Now, this slap, though, again, it's about insult and not physical assault. Why is that important? Well, I'll explain in a moment, but let's first prove it. Notice how can you be slapped on your right cheek if someone is using their right hand? The right hand is the hand of striking in both the Old and the New Testament. It's the hand of power. Well, if your enemy is facing you, the only way you can be struck on the right cheek is through a backhanded movement. And that shows us the issue is not a physical assault, but rather an insult. And so, in other words, Jesus is not saying by telling us, turn the other cheek, that if some criminal is assaulting your son, well, here's my daughter too. No, that's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is if they want to insult you, let them. It's about insult, not assault. And so because of that, I want to talk about four things that this text does not mean because this text is so often abused. Let me tell you what this turning the other cheek does not mean. And we'll talk more about it actually in our application. First of all, I know pacifists within the Christian tradition have often tried to claim that this text proves that the government cannot put murders to death. In fact, it's influenced certain jurors in various trials throughout America. The idea goes, well, of course, we can't put a murder to death. Why? Well, turn the other cheek. No, this text is not teaching that. In fact, we know the government's role is to restrain evil. Genesis 9, 6, it says, if a man sheds a man's blood, so by man shall his blood be shed. Paul, under the new covenant, says in Romans 13, 4, that the government does not bear the sword in vain. So yes, the government's job is to put the murderer to death. So this text can't be used to say that that's not true. Second, some claim that the government doesn't have the right to go to war or to strike enemies that may hurt their populace, after all, turn the other cheek. No, that's not true. The turning of the other cheek is about a personal insult, not assault, whether it's at the personal or the corporate level. Number three, Some would claim that an individual Christian, because of this text, cannot be a police officer. Or you can't be a soldier, a marine, a sailor, an airman. Why? Well, after all, you have to turn the other cheek. No. 
That's not what this text is teaching, and I'll talk more about that in our application from Luke 3.14. Finally, some people claim that this means Christians can't protect themselves from a physical assault. No, that is not what this text is teaching. Again, the text is about insult, not assault. And so what Jesus is doing in telling us to turn the other cheek is he's telling us that if we belong to him, if we are his people, we have to be willing to forgo the desire for vengeance and for retaliation. And instead, we are to be those who are loving, long-suffering, benevolent towards even our enemies. Again, why? Because Christ was benevolent and long-suffering with us while we were his enemies. That's what Jesus is driving us to in this text. Now, we see here as we proceed in the last three verses of this section, the legal courtroom background that Jesus is teaching, I think, becomes very evident. Notice here, verses 40 through 42, Jesus says, If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, brothers and sisters, notice the term here. I'll pull up my pointer again, the term for suing. And that shows us, again, the core issue here is the courtroom and the insults that happened in the culture not being physically assaulted by a criminal. Now, in particular, Jesus is talking about an issue where if someone sues you to take your shirt, the shirt that he's talking about is the chitone. And it would be the inner shirt that under the old covenant was often given as a pledge in a contract. In fact, if you're a note taker, don't turn to it, but jot down Exodus 22, verses 26 through 27. Because in that passage, it provided that if someone was in a dispute, let's say you had a laborer, they might say, yes, I will pay my boss back. I'm going to give my inner shirt as collateral. That's what they would do. But according to that same passage in Exodus 22, verses 26 through 27, what was prohibited for you to take from someone in a dispute as collateral was their outer garment. That would be the coat that Jesus is referring to here. Now, why would that coat be prohibited by a boss, for example, taking it as collateral, saying, hey, yeah, you pay me back or I get your coat? Because the Lord says that may be the only thing to keep the poor warm on a cold night. It may be all they have. And so Jesus is turning this convention on its head saying, you, if you're my people, you're going to be willing not only to give your shirt as collateral, you're going to give your coat as well. Number one, because your word is good. But number two, because you're one who goes above and beyond the call of duty. That's the type of benevolence we are to show. Now, as we get to verse 41, we come to the passage that ends up being a proverbial expression, even in our culture today, going the extra mile. Notice he says, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, to understand that, realize Israel, at the time Jesus is teaching this, they're under Roman domination. The Romans had a law in which they could press into service a civilian that they were dominating, that that civilian would have to carry, like a porter, some of their military goods for up to a mile. In fact, what's very interesting is the term force there, angaruo, 
is used of, remember, Simon the Cyrene? You can read about this in Matthew 27, 32. He is forced to carry Jesus' cross by the Romans. And I want you to think about how insulting that would be. Think about how despised the Romans were, these pagans dominating our land, the Israelites would say. These pagans dominating the land of God. And yet now they come and boss me and tell me I got to carry their food or their water for up to a mile. Can you imagine how insulting that would be? And then Jesus comes along and says, not only do it for one mile, go with them too. Why? Because we belong to Christ. And Christ was the one, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. He was benevolent to us and we belong to him. That's what he's calling to. Again, this is not about assault. This is about an insult. And you cannot get any greater insults than the one that Jesus is using. If someone doesn't come away with the idea, this is all about an insult, you're not reading the text well. It's not about a physical assault. It's about a tremendous insult and a shame on our culture. Now, in verse 42, notice the benevolence we're called to. He says, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Why should we be that gracious? Two reasons. Number one, because our possessions, our treasures, they're not here and now ultimately. And by the way, as I say that, it doesn't mean it's wrong to own things. But the idea is that's not ultimately where our treasure is. It's with the king and the kingdom. That's number one. But number two, if God graciously gave us all things in Jesus Christ, how much more should you and I, therefore, be willing to be gracious as well? Brothers and sisters, this teaching that Jesus is giving us is not telling us that we have to be a bunch of pacifists who allow murderers and criminals to run roughshod over the innocent or us. It's not about assault. It's about insult. What he's telling us, we have to forego the demand to be vengeful, and find revenge in this life if we're insulted. And instead, we are called to be long-suffering servants who benevolently give even to our enemies. Why? Because you and I belong to the King of Kings who was benevolent to us when we were still his enemies. That's the point that Jesus is making in this passage. Now, With that, let me turn to three application points that I think flow from this text. Number one, we must understand that while self-defense is not a sin, the desire for revenge must be tempered by the people of God. We must not be those who are vengeful or spiteful, but we can protect innocent life. That's part, I think, of a Christian worldview. Number two, we must trust that God will one day avenge his people. If you and I don't believe that God's perfect future justice is coming, We'll try to avenge ourselves here and now. Just like if you and I don't believe that the best is coming in the kingdom, we'll try to live it up for sin and get all we can here and now. This is about trusting the promises of God. Third, we should cultivate a desire to be benevolent even to our enemies. Why? Because we belong to the God who did that for us. That's what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so let's begin with the first application point. And I want to mention that one of the difficulties in teaching this text on turning the other cheek is that so much time has to be spent on dispelling myths and untruths about what this text does not teach. But I do want to begin there because I think we have to build a Christian worldview by looking at all the biblical data. The first thing I want to mention here 
again, is that turning the other cheek is about what? It's about insult, not assault. Now, as I say that, I want you to realize that the New Testament does not give a systematized teaching on self-defense, just as it does not give a systematized teaching on a lot of things that we would like it to teach on. It is a book of salvation. If you want to be saved, the Bible's for you. Let me illustrate this through a story. Many of you probably heard this story where years ago there was a famous theologian and there was some, some uh, journalist comes up to him and he asked this world-class theologian, he says, hey, if you're ever stranded on a desert island, what book would you want to have with you? And of course, everyone thinks that this theologian is going to say the Bible. Well, when he tells them, he says, well, I'd actually like Brown's book of shipbuilding. <laughs> Don't you love it? Why? Because yes, the Bible will teach you how to be saved, but that's not his problem. He's stuck on a desert island. He needs to build a ship. In the same way, my point is, the Bible doesn't always address every issue. But what the New Testament does do is that it assumes the right for self-defense that was laid out under the old covenant. It assumes it to be the case, and it never corrects it. Now, I'm going to show you a passage from the Old Testament that clearly teaches the right for self-defense. And it's found here in Exodus 22, verses 2 through 3. The context is all about a thief that breaks in. And this is different case law in that section of Exodus where God says, in this case, you can do this. In this case, you can do that. Well, this particular case, it's a thief that breaks in. And the question is, is it moral to kill him? And you'll see the answer is yes. Now, before I put it on the screen, I want to handle an objection. Some of you might be rightly saying, hey, wait a minute, Eric, we're new covenant people, and yet you're giving us an old covenant text to solve this issue. I want to mention, number one, what we're going to find out is that, yes, the old covenant given by God shows us the morality of self-defense. Think of it this way. If God ordains self-defense in the old covenant and self-defense is immoral, would God not therefore be immoral? He ordained it. So we know that it's moral. And we also know that when we approach the new covenant, the new covenant assumes the right to self-defense. It never corrects it. And so this would be binding still today, not because it comes from Exodus, because it's something that the Lord has never repealed by his apostles and prophets under the new covenant. Let's look at this. Exodus 22, 2 through 3. It says, If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. Now, stop there for just a moment. You're going to find out that this is predicated on happening at night. And you'll see why. Because notice in verse 3, it says, But, here's the caveat, if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Okay, now... One thing I want to show here is that notice the text is distinguishing between killing the criminal as he breaks in at night and you're not guilty versus killing the criminal if he breaks in during the day and all of a sudden you become guilty. Why was there a distinction that way? Well, let me give you four reasons why, according to this scholar in the Old Testament named Stuart Douglas. He makes four good points. He says, number one, assumed if you came at night, you had bad motives. 
Only the decent or the honorable come during the day. If you come at night, you have to expect as the criminal, you're going to be put down. It's on you if you're breaking into someone's home at night. That was implied in this text. Number two, defending during the night assumed that you didn't know the intent of the intruder. Were they trying to steal your possessions or are they trying to kill you and your family? You don't know. Some of the intentions are masked by the darkness itself. So you have to assume the worst at night. Number three, the homeowner awakened at night is in a severe disadvantage. They've just been awakened and now they're trying to make a distinction. Am I trying to be, is this thief going to kill me and my family or is he going to just steal my ox? You don't know. The awakened homeowner is at a huge disadvantage. They have to assume the worst. Number four, if this happened during the day in the typical Israelite village, many people in the day would have come to the aid of the homeowner. That's the way it was. And they could have been easily restrained. So what you see, dear ones, ironically, is in the blue. If you have a criminal coming at night, the idea is your life is at threat and it's okay to protect your life, even killing a criminal. But when it comes to what's in red, the idea is not that you're protecting yourself, but now you're starting to protect your stuff and perhaps even going out into vengeance and retaliation. This type of doctrine flows through even to our Western jurisprudence where, yes, we say that people today can defend themselves and their family, but they can't defend just material. You want my VCR? I can't kill you. But you want to harm my son? I can't. That's the idea even in Western jurisprudence today. And so that's what the scriptures are clearly teaching. Brothers and sisters, this is never taken back in the new covenant. In fact, it's assumed to be the case, the right for self-defense under the new covenant. Jesus says in Luke 11, 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. Is Jesus making a comment about the morality of it? No. But he is assuming it's the case, and it's never corrected. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, in telling us to turn the other cheek, is not contradicting the right of self-defense. But he is telling us that we might want to not be the vengeful, spiteful pagans that surround us in this culture. That's what he's calling us to refrain from, is vengefulness and being spiteful. Now, I want to mention another thing I've heard the turn the other cheek passage mean by those in the pacifist tradition in Christianity is that you as Christians cannot be a police officer. You can't be a soldier, a Marine, a sailor, an airman. Why? Well, after all, we have to turn the other cheek. What I'm going to show you is a key text in the New Covenant where John the Baptist teaches that, yes, you can be a follower of Christ and also a soldier Therefore, a police officer, a Marine, what have you. Okay, now, the text I'm going to show you is from Luke 3.14. Remember, John the Baptist is a prophet for God. And as he's preparing the way for the Messiah, he's preaching and teaching people to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so what happens is various groups come up to him and say, well, what do we do? In other words, what does bearing fruit in keeping with repentance look like for us? And here we find that a group of soldiers come up to him. Luke 3, 14, it says some soldiers were questioning him saying, and what about us? What shall we do? Stop there. 
What are they asking? They're asking, what does repentance look like for us? And if there was ever a time in the new covenant, if God wanted to tell Christians, you can't be soldiers, you can't be police officers. What are you, crazy? You belong to me. You have to turn the other cheek. If there was ever a time for God to settle the issue, now would be the time. But notice what John the Baptist says to them. Does he say, you guys can't be soldiers? No. He says, and he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. In other words, be good soldiers. Don't abuse your power. That is what is clearly being taught in the scriptures. The idea that you would take money by using force is stealing. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness and be content and don't extort wages. Be good soldiers. And so, brothers and sisters, the point is, if you have someone who is a Marine, an airman, a soldier, a sailor, a police officer, yes, you can be a Christian and serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but also serve the government in restraining the evil one. What we ultimately see in Scripture that's taught is self-defense is not prohibited. It is not. What is prohibited is seeking revenge. That's prohibited. That's what Jesus doesn't want. Again, you all know the difference. Self-defense, if I don't put this bad guy down, someone dies, someone who's innocent. Revenge. My name is insulted. I'm going to follow this guy to the ends of the earth to get even. That's the difference. By the way, seeking revenge is prohibited for the individual believer, but not the government. The government is to execute justice on behalf of God and put the evildoer down. But for the individual Christian, self-defense, yes, not seeking revenge. That's the idea. Now, let's come to our second application point, and that is Christ has called us again not to be those who seek retribution or be vengeful. We have to trust that one day God will, in fact, bring justice on our behalf. If we don't believe that, if we think that, yes, all justice must be dispensed here and now, we will live vengeful and spiteful lives. And so we have to trust the promises of God. Now, remember when it concerns the unregenerate, I think the Christian goal is always twofold. First of all, we want to see every unbeliever come to faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's our number one goal. But number two, if someone won't repent and they keep persecuting us, we have to be those who trust that ultimately God's perfect justice will be meted out, that you and I don't have to seek out vengeance here and now. And so I'm going to show you where the Apostle Paul taught the very same thing, the very same doctrine that Jesus Christ did here in Romans 12, 19 through 21. Notice Paul said, Never take your own revenge, beloved. Stop there. First of all, who is the beloved? It's the believer. This is for the believer. We're not to take our own revenge. The term revenge there, ekdikeo, has to do with justifying yourself, as it were, from an insult, making things right. It's not about defense. This is about getting even. Don't take your own revenge, believers, but rather what? Leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, now here comes Deuteronomy 32.25, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap 
burning coals on his head. Stop there. What does it mean that if we do good to our enemies, it will heap burning coals upon their head? There's quite a debate about this. Does this mean that they're going to turn and repent? Or does it mean they're going to suffer greater judgment? I think it's the latter. I think the idea that's being taught here is that when you are decent and good and benevolent to the ungodly and they continue to persecute you, it heaps even further culpability upon them in the future judgment. But nonetheless, notice in verse 21, he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is a great summary of exactly what Jesus Christ taught us today in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't take your own revenge, but overcome evil with good. The only way that you and I are going to be able to do that is if we trust one day God is going to right the ship and he's going to put down those who have done evil, that he will bring justice and revenge on the behalf of the godly. Now, I have to say to you, and I'll mention this on our last slide, it's been a difficult week as an American, as a believer, to see some of the injustices that go on in our culture. And I think this passage is very apropos for us. And again, we have to believe that one day, if justice isn't dispensed here, it will be in the eschatological age. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. What I'm going to show you is a passage that teaches us when this great reversal will happen, where God will dispense the justice that he's promised. When will it happen? Is it going to happen during the church age? No. It's going to happen in the future day of the Lord, in the 70th week of Daniel. That's when it begins. So again, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. Notice Paul says, he says, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, stop there. The term affliction, philipsis, is the term for tribulation. And yes, Christians do go through some tribulation here and now during the church age. But notice what's being promised is that there's going to be a time of great reversal where those of us who are afflicted during the church age are going to be spared and those who are doing the afflicting, the unregenerate, are going to be judged. Now, when does that happen? Notice verse 7. He says, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, that's the believer, and to us, the apostles, their believers, as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Stop there. When does that happen? In the 70th week of Daniel. The rapture occurs, the wrath of God is poured out, and there's a reversal of affliction. The philipsis comes upon the world and the unregenerate, those who dwell upon the earth, as it says in Revelation, but not for the believer. Now, how long is this punishment going to come upon the ungodly? Well, he says in verse 9, these, that would be the unregenerate, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. How long? Eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Dear ones, those who are not caught and brought to justice here and now, they either are going to repent and we can rejoice that their fellow brothers and sisters who have escaped the wrath of God, or they will be punished forevermore. But not one person will ever get away with doing evil. 
not want. And we have to trust that. Otherwise, we will try to get retribution ourselves here and now. Okay, let me come then to our final point. That is what Christ is calling us routinely in the Sermon on the Mount is to be like the God who purchased us. The God who was benevolent because we belong to him, we have to be benevolent too. And so I want you to see that in other places. This is all over the new covenant. Notice here, Luke six twenty seven through 28, Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, stop there for just a moment. What does it mean to be those who hear? Is it just hearing sound waves go through our ears? No, it means hearing with faith. Think about Deuteronomy 6, 4, the famous Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Does it mean simply hear the sound waves going through your ear? Does it mean hear with faith, believe it? It means the latter. And so the idea is then to to say, but I say to you who hear means to the believer, who not only hears it, but believes it. What are we to do for believers? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, God was benevolent to us while we were his enemies. Would it not be hypocritical or incongruous for you and I not to be benevolent to others? Can you imagine being forgiven so much by the Lord, but you won't forgive someone else? No, it's, what's the phrase? It's unbecoming an officer and a gentleman. It is unbecoming a Christian to live that way. And so Jesus is telling us this new ethic. In fact, he continues, Luke 6, 32 to 33, he says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Brothers and sisters, what Jesus is teaching us here is what it means to be a saint. Do you know that the moment you trusted upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you became a saint. The term saint comes from the term hagios. It means one who is set apart. So a saint is not one who has been voted on by the Catholic Church, that somehow you were good enough in your life and then they vote you into sainthood. When I was a kid, I always thought a saint was a person just did good things and in the cartoons, they'd always have a halo around their head. That's not the biblical idea. The biblical idea is for those who have been set apart in Jesus Christ, meaning you don't belong to the world. If this is the world, that belongs to Satan. We belong to Christ. And if you belong to him, if you're set apart, you're going to have this new ethic. Because even the unregenerate, yeah, they'll love those who love themselves. They'll love people who are their friends. But it's Christ who loved his enemies to the point of dying for them. And that's the kind of love that we're called to hear, a sacrificial love, a love in which you and I do good to those who do evil to us. And now we come to the coup de grace, Luke 6, 34 to 35. Again, same thing that Jesus teaching in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, the same thing. He says, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Brothers and sisters, if you want to summarize what Jesus is teaching 
in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, turn the other cheek, it's found here in below. That you and I would be kind to evil men because we belong to our God who was kind to us when we were those evil men and women. That's the idea. That's what we're called to. By the way, as I say these things, this is something that the unregenerate cannot do. They cannot love in this way. And so this type of love, of loving one's enemies, is something that can only be given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit belongs to every single Christian, not to some, not to an elect group, but to every Christian. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 9, that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to God. So the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to enable us to love in this way. Now, how can you have the Holy Spirit? It's only through conversion. And so perhaps there are some who are listening today on the Internet. You want to know how you can have this kind of love, how you can have the forgiveness of sins. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. Today is the day to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because the bad news is very bad indeed. The bad news in the scriptures is that every single one of us has rebelled against God in thought, word, and deed that we deserve the wrath of God. In fact, we will incur the wrath of God forevermore in the future. That's bad news. But the good news is that God sent forth his son, the son who existed as God and with God from all eternity. At a point in time in history through the virgin birth, he became a man. Truly God, truly man in one person. Why? So that he could live the perfect life that you and I could not. So that by trusting in him, his righteousness could be credited to us. But Jesus didn't just live the perfect life. He died a substitutionary death. Jesus, the just, on behalf of us, the unjust, in order that we might be brought to God, in order that we might have forgiveness of sins. The proof of that was found by Jesus being raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That he also ascended into the heavens where he's seated at the right hand of God. From where he's coming again, to bring a glorious kingdom for his people, but wrath and judgment upon his enemies and justice. What must we do? Jesus doesn't give a suggestion. He gives a command. Every single person is to repent and to believe the gospel. Repentance means to turn from sin, self, idolatry, false religion, turn to God in his terms, which is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. If you will trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ today, You'll have the absolute assurance of the forgiveness of sins and you too will be filled by the Spirit who will allow you and enable you to even love your enemies. Dear ones, this last week has been very difficult for me as a citizen of this world and I have to say that this text was very timely and it's probably kept me, if I were an unregenerate, from being in jail because some of the injustices that we've seen over the last year and our own country have been very difficult. And if you don't see it, I'm not going to mention them because it's better to remain in ignorant bliss. Okay? But for those of us who do see it, you know the injustices of which I speak. And I'll tell you what this passage did to me personally because I wrestle with it always before I give it to you. This passage really challenged me to ask this question to myself. Am I living for what the United States used to be? Or am I living for Christ and what his kingdom will be? And that's how we live in the world today. That's what this text means for us 
today. As you go out the door, let me have you ask that of yourself. Are you living for what America used to be? Or are you living for what Christ and his kingdom is going to be? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you keep us from sin and from rebellion, all because of your word. We pray, Heavenly Father, in these difficult days of injustices, that you would help us to be those who, yes, protect the innocent, who are defenders of the innocent, but yet don't seek retribution and revenge, that we would make a place for your vengeance and trust you, but we would be those who do loving deeds and have loving words on our lips for even our enemies, for those who persecute us, so that we can be called sons and daughters of the Most High. I pray, Lord, that you would do a work through us so that we'd be able to do these things to be pleasing to you, that we'd be those who live not for this world, but for you and your kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand, if you will, for the benediction. Out of Jude 24 and 25. You know, it's so nice to be able to see your Bible. (laughs) I was just seeing little shades of it here and there, but I knew most of it at this benediction here. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. God bless all of you. Have a wonderful week.